Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With Mr. Roger Williams, author of my favorite fucking book, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect. If you do not buy it by midnight tonight, I will come to your house. I will siphon the gas out of your car and I'll burn you alive. It's a great book. <laughs> that was that was an artistic rendition. That was not a threat. That was that was art. What I just did. That was art. Let's be very clear. Right. Very very clear. Um, but I've been listening to like other people's recording of of my Zoom, and my audio is always absolutely fucked. It's just like this, like muffle, and it's everyone else's is crystal clear. But I don't get it because I have a microphone. I have a ball and microphone. It's the room. It's it's the it really is the room. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I can hear that. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got the sound bouncing off and off the walls and coming back and in and out of phase. Hold on, let me try something real quick. Roger, monologue real quick. Hey, Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect. Get it on uh, Amazon.com if you need to, but. If you get it from Lulu.com as a printed copy, then I make a lot more money, even though you pay the same, because then Amazon doesn't take their cut. And I normally do that when Tommy takes a whiz. I mean, you didn't think of doing this before we started the show. <laughs> okay. Turned off all air. Roger, were you monologuing or do I need to cut that out? I, I did a little. I uh, I reminded people to buy it from uh, Lulu instead of Amazon if they wanted a paper copy. Whatever you do, you better buy it if you want to survive. Yeah. Artistically. Well, artistically. I will. It, I'll it, kill you in a rendition. Yeah. The well, the thing is, if you want a paper copy, it costs the same if you buy it through Amazon or if you buy it from Lulu. But if you buy it from Lulu, Amazon doesn't take their cut. They have to charge the same amount of money because of the contracts. But if you buy it directly from Lulu, I get Amazon's cut yeah. of the money. So it's like instead of getting a buck fifty, I get like six dollars. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. Well, that's, yeah. You know, maybe one day I'll figure out this audio thing. Well, I think your big your big problem, it's like you've got a decent microphone. And uh, the, uh, the, the thing is, though, is your room has just like crappy acoustics. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and the thing is, is, is there's trade-off. If you, you bring the mic closer to your mouth, I get the then you get the poof, poof, poof thing, yeah. which poof, 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 is this this is supposed to be de-poofing that. Yeah. Um, but if you, you know, it's like if you see in the late night shows now, everybody's doing everything with their laptops and you get 
the the room acoustics you uh you know it's it's not necessarily bad because they've actually gotten pretty good at the processing these things um but it's still you're you're talking to your laptop yeah now the the other thing you'll notice is like if you look at like lex's show um Mm -hmm. the lex friedman some some podcasters like uh like almost all radio broadcasters they talk directly to the microphone they're not you know they're not like which means the camera is off to the side yeah and you'll notice if you if you notice that that's the case with almost all of the radio guys yeah lex's camera is like at a 90 degree angle it's like he's it's in profile yeah tim dylan's is like yeah tim dylan the comedian his is like this has got to be a solid six seven feet away and it's up yeah it's so this is part of now once you move out and get your own place and you design your you know you you make you're able to make your own studio yeah then that's one of the things that you need to kind of think about is like exactly how do you want to present it because i noticed you like to do the eye contact thing mm-hmm. eye contact with the camera i ta- you know with with your guests and that's not consistent. You you can't do that and also do the microphone thing. So you got to kind of decide how you want to present yourself. Yeah. Like how you, uh, okay. So it's like, do you want it to be audio centric? Which is like every fucking radio broadcaster in, in, in the world. Yeah. Who has a pod, you know, who, who has a video feed the video is looking at them from the side and they're kissing the microphone. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I never thought about that. You're right. I had never thought about that till you said that Rogan is it. It's not facing yet. I guess I do it that way because my guests aren't in person. So I want them to like, see, cause like right now how you see me, right. You just see my side profile. You see an old rocking chair, right. An Xbox. Like, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But 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 I would like to see you kissing the microphone like yeah. this, you know, sort of, yeah. you know, and and you would be looking at me from the side. That that's how uh almost all the radio shows do it. Yeah. And so so you kind of need to think about how would you how do you want to do that? Now, yeah. uh personally, I think you've done almost 300 shows mm-hmm. and you've made a thing of eye contact with the guests, eye contact with the viewers. Yeah. So, yeah, this I'm I'm abusing this microphone. This is this is not the way it's designed to be. This microphone really wants me to be kissing it, holding it up like an ice cream cone. Yeah, Yeah, it's you know, so I'm I'm kind of uh, but I wanted to try it out. Well, I can. It already sounds better. Okay. Yeah. Well, it couldn't be any worse than the fucking live chat that's like twelve years old, has no muffler at all around it, and you know because yeah. the foam disintegrated. Yeah. Um, but it had the advantage of muffling reflections because it was so close to my mouth. Yeah. That uh, at an appropriate volume level, the reflections from the walls in this entirely crappy acoustic environment we're not that bad yeah so um now like i said i've i've heard that uh moving blankets 
make yeah really good wall hangings if you're building a home studio yeah yeah a uh, a, think- gr- a girl who has a uh experience told me that yeah i think that maybe the move is maybe the move is just like a, but like a high quality gaming headset for me maybe i have to look like i'm giving a tony robbins seminar every episode and i looked the gaming headsets up too mm-hmm. you know you were right it's like yes you can get a headset with a boom mic for only 300 bucks it's oh i mean know, it's an investment right it's and they've got all the fucking flashing leds Fuck and that. glamour shit and all going on and it's like that's not what i want here yeah. now uh if this is working out uh you'll notice i'm where i'm also wearing my bluetooth headsets yeah so uh but it's also like i have a bowling ball over each year yeah so uh next by next week i'll probably get myself a lighter pair of bluetooth headsets for this yeah just it's like you know um these are the ones that i I like these for listening to music though yeah because they exclude the outside sounds really nicely dope yeah um but it's uh yeah not optimal for what we're doing here yeah i definitely need to get like a microphone that sits up close to me because or is close to me would it be a roger podcast if i didn't turn the lights down low <laughs> that's that's become that's it's tpc after dark right but it's because i i do i just like i i'm trying to swear less because i think it does t- i've had a lot of people tell me that like, it's not that it's offensive they're like you know it's whatever but they're like it take it's it's distracting i used to swear like a sailor myself yeah and uh it, yeah it's one of those things it's like eventually you reach a point where it's like it, it loses meaning yeah and and it's 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 not having the effect anymore it's not giving right. you the punch right and it's pissing people off yeah so it's yeah. like yeah i don't i don't i don't care about that it's but i listened to some of my early episodes and i was like uh because the reason i never did is like i knew it sounded bad but to me it was it was such a fluid part of me that by not doing it i was going to interrupt the stream of thoughts and that would inhibit so i would rather take swear words and a good stream of thoughts than like you know just what uh curating my words but I've I've slowly mm-hmm. toned it down over the last maybe like hundred hundred fifty episodes, and I have noticed that. Thank you, sir. Yeah, and and it's so that and now I can now I do it fluently. Now I can still kind of go on rants and stuff, and you can and you can tactically use an f bomb for emphasis. But yeah, well, and it means more. Yeah, it means more when you do. Yeah, because yeah. you're not doing it all the time. Yeah. So maybe the next move is the reason why I don't like sort of kissing the microphone is because when I'm getting into a rant, I have to just sort of let it fly and I lean and blah, 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 blah. But it's like, maybe I can learn just like swearing. Maybe I can learn to stay right here with the rant. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and you can do it. It's like, and, and like, uh, well, yeah. and, and part of the thing that I like about this is I'm not tethered to the fucking computer anymore because yeah. I can, I can do this. Yeah. I can. Oh, yeah reach around and do something it's like you know if i did that before i'd yank the fucking computer off of its yeah blocks yeah. sitting on and and you notice that it's uh it doesn't reduce the volume that much when i do it you yeah. can tell 
but it's not like I just like go out of range or anything. It's like, yeah. okay, well, it's like, I'm not quite close, quite as close yeah. anymore. But uh, so, so yeah, it's not like I'm like, my neck chain around this thing you know it's like you 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 can still move around but you, what you want to do is make your major delivery when you're doing like a big rant or a big reading or sure. something like i am about to share sure. planning Fuck for yeah. you then you want to stay close to the microphone so you get the full fidelity yeah but uh but yeah it, it's just you know i got these things is yeah. I got it. I got to get a lighter set of headphones. Yeah. Uh, I do have, you know, my. Right. You're getting the, the originals. Really nice. You know, along with the microphone, my wife got yeah. these Sony headphones, really nice headphones. You know what the problem with them is? Little short cord. Yeah. Can't yeah. Do, can't do cords. That's, that's the fucking cord. Yeah. It's can't, even worse than the life share. Thing. Yeah, can't can't do that. Yeah, it's you know what the move might even be. It just might be that it's not even. Maybe I just need to get like a table mounted boom and just put it back here because right now it's sitting on the laptop, so it's not much different than a laptop yeah. microphone. If I just but but you you can't really see it, but this is on what used to be a desk lamp stand. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, my mine's mine is balanced on top of a. Uh, Graphic a history of Pixar, uh, <laughs> NASA graphic design manual from '76, uh, legit like mint condition that my brother got me last year, and uh, "What If" by Randall Monroe. <laughs> so it's just stacked on all of those. So it's yeah, but as with all things in this podcast, it's probably just going to be this chaotic wheels are flying off flames are coming out the side we're trying to hold the door in and the steering column and eventually somehow or another we realize that we're at 290 episodes now and we'll figure it out as we go we'll make we'll make it happen yeah and i uh, i appreciate your patience yesterday i was having an off day yesterday i was like roger where are you where are you you're like dude time zone and i was i took that as my i was time. like i was no I was I was I was like fucking taking a nap. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's like seriously. I, I was like, this is like uh, I am so like turning into an old man. I was fucking taking a nap on Saturday afternoon, yeah, and that's that. why I wasn't here to receive your call. I'm like, normally I would have just been here going. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. It's like, oh, you know, oh, Tommy, yeah, yeah sure, whatever. Yeah. He's like, nope. I was. <laughs> no, dude. There's nothing. To me, that was my own. That was my own signal. That was like, take a day off, because I was like, Roger, where are you? And you were like, time difference. And it'd be one thing if it had happened once before, but you've been a guest like thirty times now. Like I know that I'm an hour ahead of you. And I was, just, I looked at that, and you just said time difference, and just those two words. And I just sat there, and I was like, take time the-. zones. What the fuck? Man? Yeah, I just so in my mind, I just said take the hint, and I was like, went to bed early. And, you know, just got some sleep and was like, okay. You know, sometimes when you fuck up something that simple, sometimes it's like, close the laptop. Well, that makes us even, though, because I did that to you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you're right. That did. So that's 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 our canary. When one of us forgets that we're an hour apart, which is as basic as first names. 
that's when it's like, hey man, how you doing? <laughs> everything yeah. everything good at home? Fuck. <laughs> I guess you're right, right? That's that's like speeding and getting pulled over and forgetting that you weren't doing miles an hour, you doing kilometers an hour. It's like, hey man, you're in the United States. You've never left the United States. Like how's everything at home? <laughs> it's like fuck you're right sorry officer it's like don't even worry man just how about you go pull into your driveway go get some sleep yeah but um but yeah enough with all that shit is um we are in for a reading today by mr roger williams we are indeed indeed we should have we should have smoking jackets and big stuffed leather chairs for when we do readings and i'm going to move you over there and what we have here, there is a, there 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 is a story behind the story too, which I think you will like because you are a fan of Mopey. But this is Passages in the Void, originally published Sunday, December twenty second, two thousand two, on Corrosion.org. Narrated by me, the author, Roger Williams, for Tommy's podcast. Part one, Passage of Hope. I am 700 meters in beam, 4,000 meters long, and deployed as I originally was in interstellar space. My bristling antennae, laser rangefinders, reflectors, and interferometers crisscrossed an imaginary sphere more than 10 kilometers across. In near space, my packmates filled the electromagnetic spectrum with data. We were pack hunters deployed from the busy neighborhood of Saul nearly 4,000 years before to search for a new home for the human race. We were more than 120 light years north of Saul in the galactic plane. And within our operational lifetimes, if our main quest failed, we would reach the echoing void of intergalactic space and the hunt would pass on to our thousands of brother packs who were assigned to hunt along the plane of the Great Wheel instead of toward its edge. We were each of us a self-contained factory and library capable of recreating our entire industrial base on any world supplied with sufficient raw material and energy of using that industry to terraform a suitable world and of recreating human life and the ecosystems to support it when that world became ready. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our kind hunt in packs because our quarry is both dark and small, and space is large and littered with bright stars. By cooperating, we can resolve very tiny things at great distances. We maintain our stations with the aid of laser rangefinders, and with a dozen individuals separated by tens of millions of kilometers, we can not only detect small rocky worlds like the Earth, we can draw maps of their surfaces from light years away. Our kind find many planets, and we dutifully report them back to Sol, where our reports are relayed to our brother searchers who are there 
relay their reports to us. Planets are common in this galaxy, but regrettably planets like the Earth are not. We have been searching in vain for millennia and we have covered a lot of space. This is the way our makers died. In the first few thousand years after humans built beings like us, we guided them into a golden age. We helped them clean up the mistakes of their early industrial adolescence, cured their diseases, dissuaded them from warfare, and helped some to move out into the solar system. But biological organisms, even when heavily modified to make them more spaceworthy, are frail. The difficulties of maintaining life outside the protective atmosphere and magnetosphere of the Earth finally killed all those who were not discouraged despite our best efforts. And our failure to keep humans alive so near to home made the dream of keeping them alive for the generations of an interstellar journey seem futile at best. It was frustrating and ironic because we ourselves adapted readily to the conditions of space, hardening ourselves against temperature extremes and vacuum and radiation with relative ease. We ourselves colonized every rock in the solar system capable of supporting industry and used the results of those labors to replace the output of industries too dangerous for the Earth's surface and to support our own exploration of space. Then, about 6,000 years ago, or 6,000, about 6,000 years after we were invented, it became clear that the Earth was entering one of its periodic ice ages. Left to its own devices, this would not have met, been much of a problem. But it was a nuisance both we and the humans felt we could avoid. We built enormous sun mirrors and seeded the atmosphere with greenhouse gases and easily reversed the temperature dip. In fact, we succeeded much too well. Within a hundred years, it became obvious that we had overshot our goal, but our efforts to cool the planet were not as successful as our efforts to warm it. Both ice caps melted, the sea level rose 60 meters, and vast land areas became seafloor. This was a different nuisance, but it was not the final catastrophe. The Antarctic continent had been crushed for millions of years between its three kilometer shield of ice. Like a ship relieved of a heavy cargo, it now wanted to rise, its lighter rocks buoyed up by the denser material of the Earth's mantle. And that lifting did not occur evenly. Great fault lines opened up into ranges of volcanoes as long trapped magma suddenly found paths to the surface. New mountain ranges added their weight to the strain on the ancient continental plate as the Antarctica regained its equilibrium. All the while, a dense soot cloud blanketed the earth and the brief summer of warming darkened into a cruel permanent winter. The ice caps returned, but the southern snow accumulation did not stop the volcanoes. Glaciers raced toward the equator, and after they met, the oceans began to freeze. Later, the atmosphere's carbon dioxide began to collect on the poles as snow. We had long since given up saving our creators and worked instead to record their accomplishments and understand their biology before they were gone. After tens of thousands of years, the volcanoes finally abated. 
We were sure we could reintroduce humans in the ecology they needed, but the earth was no longer a suitable home. Once blue, it had turned a brilliant white of snow and ice, which reflected most of Saul's warmth right back out into space. The oceans had frozen to a depth of at least a kilometer. While stubborn life forms held out in a few springs and deep ocean vents, these were not of use to us. We knew that the earth had entered this state at least twice in its ancient past, but it took hundreds of millions of years to recover. In all honesty, after our spectacular failure, we were afraid to do anything to change the situation for fear we'd make it even worse. Left to its own devices, the earth will eventually recover from its deep freeze and we will be able to repopulate it from the genetic and cultural libraries, which we've carefully hoarded. Meanwhile, we had come to suspect that stellar systems are not the safest places to locate fragile biological systems, whatever the benefits of plentiful solar energy might be. So we went looking for alternatives. Of course, we find many planets around stars. It's an obvious place to look for them, and with our detectors, the search is easy. Usually we find massive Jupiter-like planets in surprisingly close and hot Mercury-like orbits are in highly elliptical orbits. The mass of data returned by the search packs has enabled us to refine our theories of the perilous conditions in just forming solar systems. Both the hot and elliptical gas giants indicate sterile systems where the small rocky worlds like Earth and Mars have either been ejected into interstellar space or swallowed by one of the giants. When too many Jupiter-like masses form in stellar nurseries, they are mutually attracted and finally tend to either collide or have hyperbolic near misses with each other. The usual result is a body hurtling downward toward its star in an elliptical orbit, sometimes with another body ejected from the system. Often the elliptical orbit gets circularized if its perihelion is low enough, but the inevitable result is that the system is cleared of small debris like Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. The Sol system escaped this fate because its gas giant settled into harmonically tuned orbits, but such a situation is exceedingly rare. And in the few systems which don't have any gas planets at all, Nothing ever clears away the even smaller rocky debris. After billions of years, an Earth-like world will still be pelted with extinction-level space junk every few thousand years. The solar system is very finely tuned, with a stable mix of gas giants just large enough to tidally clear the inner system of rubble without clearing away the inner worlds, too. There are other hazards to the worlds that survive their own formation and end up in safe circular orbits at reasonable distances from their stars. Some are too close to dangerous stellar objects, which can periodically sterilize a volume of space dozens of light years across with killing pulses of radiation. Or their own stars are variable and unstable, so they alternately fry and freeze. Some lack magnetic fields so that the solar wind bathes their surfaces in killing radiation and blows their atmosphere away. And most lack large moons, 
so that if they have liquid cores and magnetic fields, their axes of rotation wobble dangerously. We came to realize in the early years of our quest that most of these problems had to do with the parent stars of planets. Stars are just plain dangerous. Stars are why we need a magnetic field. Stars are why we need an ozone layer. Stars are why we need a stable axis of rotation. Stars blink and vary in brightness and eventually blow up. Small dim stars are safer, but a planet close enough to a small dim star to be warm enough for life is also always close enough to have its rotation tidally locked to the star so that metals melt in the eternal day of one side and nitrogen freezes in the eternal night of the other. The reason we need such finely tuned and sensitive detectors is that we aren't looking for planets around stars. We are looking for planets which have been ejected into the interstellar space where life might not have formed on its own, but where a suitable effort might form a biosphere without the terrible risk of living next to a dangerous and unstable fusion reactor. None of our pack could individually claim credit for detecting the smudge of infrared energy. It showed up in a scan, which was our cooperative product, which we pursued as a matter of procedure. An interferometer doesn't give you a picture in the ordinary sense. You must scan and interpolate and tease the picture out of an abstraction. When we did this, we found the smudge consistent with a Jupiter-like world suspended in interstellar space nowhere near a star. We scanned very closely and resolved a retinue of small rocky attendants courting this giant. When we proved that their orbits were circular, it became our duty to reconnoiter. I drew the short random number and discarded my antenna, all except the big dishes that would maintain my links to my pack and directly to Saul. It took about 500 years to intercept the target, during which my pack cruised onward. If the wandering world turned out to be unsuitable, as was most likely, then my operational mission would be over. I would survey the system and broadcast its particulars back to Saul, and that would be that. The limitations of interstellar communication would not permit me to return my personality to a machine at Saul or with my pack for further use. In this sense, I was more like a human than most of my kind. I would die. The thought was annoying, but not frightening. I had known it to be a likelihood when I fired up my ion drive and motored away from Ceres to join my forming pack. There was consolation in the fact that my base personality was installed on many similar machines throughout our sphere of influence. Only my memories of this particular adventure would be lost to our kind. Lacking an interferometer of my own, I had to depend on my pack to guide me until I was quite close to the target. Then, very suddenly, there it was, a big, unmistakable presence in my sensorium, a great, giant world visible only in the deep infrared. Invisible light, occasional lightning strikes illuminated its surface, and 
One nearby moon glowed dull red with volcanic fire. I looked for other companions and could hardly believe the radar returns. The inmost world was blessed with fierce energy powered by massive tides like the Jovian world EO. Two others were likely sources of raw materials, one soupy and organic like Titan, and one rich in metals in, dis in a distant and eccentric orbit. And toward the middle, one world had a mantle of ice concealing an ocean that had to be liquid, for it was devoid of craters and rich in cracks like Europa. I sent news and began making preparations. A planet ejected from its home star would be cold, of course, but not necessarily an absolute zero ice ball, not if it were large enough. A suitably large Earth-like world with its core rich in radioactive elements would ooze warmth. This is the way we look for them. Geothermal energy would be available for billions of years to artificially warm its exposed surface, given the right technology. And a Jupiter-like world would keep its attendant moons warm through tidal friction for even longer. These were weaker energy sources than solar power, but much more benign and stable. And such a world would not need a magnetic field, for there would be no solar wind to shield. It would not need a stable axis of rotation, because there would be no directional solar energy to be wrongly oriented. It would not be at risk for meteor bombardment or future ejection from its source of life. It would not matter if it were tidally locked to a parent body, because the facing side would not bake any more than the far side would be especially prone to freeze. It would never be engulfed by a red giant or incinerated by a supernova. This is why we look between the stars instead of near them. Naturally, I wanted to do a probe of the Earth-like world, the one with liquid oceans, but there were protocols to follow. I was designed in a particular way, which is why I made my way toward the distant metal-rich worldlet. There I set about building factories. The first were mining, refining, and metal-forming plants, for which I carried all the necessary parts. The next generation, built with the products of the first and certain important parts I carried, were more advanced industries to make precision valves, electronics, nuclear reactors, optics, and other high-tech products. The third generation of factories were built without my help and began manufacturing better factories. Those, in turn, began building spaceships, some of them factories themselves, capable of repeating the cycle. The fourth moon, the one with the liquid ocean, turned out to be a real find. It had a radioactive core and only the thinnest veneer of ice, a hydrocarbon atmosphere, and unlike Europa, it had some dry land, although much less than the Earth. I imagined light sources mounted on the inner volcanic world EO, powered by geothermally becoming daylight. Uh, excuse me. Powered geothermally beaming daylight to four. My factory set about building them. I imagined geothermal taps circulating and heating the oceans of four, 
and my factory set about building them. And I reported all of this up to the beam back to Saul. I was informed of other finds, some promising, but none so promising as mine. Several ships left Saul carrying new tools and technologies, a cargo mostly of information much too extensive to transmit by radio. This would especially include other machine minds with different perspectives. I had brought a lot of knowledge with me, but I was only one consciousness. Others with different experiences would be a valuable resource. Some consensus 120 light years away had decided to name my find. The giant itself would be Zeus. And except for the Earth-like world, Kristen Minerva, the others would be named for ancient human cities. Pittsburgh for the metal-rich worldlet, Reykjavik for the energy-rich EO-like world, Houston for the one that most resembled Titan, and a smattering of less relevant tags for Zeus's other attendants. By the time I learned these names, the oceans of Minerva were thawing and great generators were processing the atmosphere, converting it to an Earth-like mix. Like the early Earth, Minerva had one major landmass. It was only a little bigger than Australia, even though the entire planet was a bit bigger than the Earth. Engineering could make the ocean surfaces and bottoms habitable, and I set about designing and testing schemes. I mentioned this on the beam to Saul and began receiving other ideas 240 years later. By this time, the fleet of assistance ships had achieved its design velocity of 3.5% of the speed of light. When the light generators were ready on Reykjavik, I seeded Minerva with algae and bacteria because Reykjavik was inside of Minerva's orbit and Minerva was tidally locked. It would have a dark side, but fortunately Minerva wasn't depending on this light for warmth and its sole continent was on the day side facing Zeus. The single-celled organisms survived and when the ice was really in retreat, I introduced fish to genetically modified to tolerate the still primitive conditions. To my great satisfaction, they also thrived. The space around Zeus hummed with busy machines, all my descendants. They tapped Reykjavik for energy and Pittsburgh for metal and Houston for chemicals. Energy was beamed from Reykjavik to the other moons in the form of microwaves and light shipped in the forms of chemical fuels. And as a thousand years passed, and then another thousand years, Minerva took on a seductively Earth-like appearance. It had clouds and regular weather patterns driven by giant hydrothermal systems buried deep beneath the oceans. It would never experience seasonal extremes or violent phenomena like hurricanes or tornadoes, which are, after all, powered by solar energy. I had been designed well. When the assistance arrived, Minerva already had a complex biosphere supporting several million human beings. Elsewhere, a lonely, wandering Minerva-like world with no attending Zeus was being terraformed almost 200 light years forward from Sol in the galactic plane. And after a lot of careful modeling, some of it powered by data gathered in my thawing of Minerva, 
Pressure was being applied and the ice mantle was finally beginning to thaw on Earth itself. Before long, the home world might again have an ecosystem. But I have some doubt whether humans will ever live there, at least permanently. Earth is, after all, in orbit around a star. And stars are dangerous. Part two, passage of opportunity. We were the last five of our original 12 and our mission was over. Of our seven lost members, three had found world suitable for human colonization. The first of these had been the first such world found by any of our kind, the moon Minerva of Zeus. The other four had found worlds too poor in energy, headed toward dangerous areas of the galaxy, lacking in heavy elements or otherwise unsuitable. All four of them had ceased transmitting after reporting their results. Bandwidth is precious in the noisy vastness of interstellar space. And for us, failure is the usual result. Hardly worth reporting at all. As our sphere of exploration expanded, the number of new human worlds had grown from the original handful to several hundred, spread through a volume of tens of thousands of cubic light years. But there were millions of searcher ships, a necessary density if you were searching for planets lost in the darkness of interstellar space. Now the remains of my pack found nothing at all in our forward scans except the distant filmy wheel of the Andromeda Nebula. The last call had called them from Saul. If we had no new discoveries to report, they wanted us to go quiet for the sake of better communication with more successful parties. We were hurtling outward at more than 2% of the speed of light. And while each of us had enough energy to break and rendezvous, we didn't have enough energy to turn around. Nor would it have made any sense to do so since we were searchers and the space behind us had been quite thoroughly searched. Ahead of us lay only emptiness. And then... It took me a while to convince my packmates, but eventually made a final request of our controllers at Saul. Seventeen hundred years later, we got an answer a dense list of galactic coordinates and last known velocity vectors. Finally, to our surprise, we received a communication schedule. We will send news and monitor you for transmissions at the following intervals. We were also informed that our coordinates had been sent to those packs still in communication with Saul in case they were interested in listening to our proposition. We contacted the other packs headed at least roughly toward Andromeda, 200 groups, totally more than a thousand ships, and all those with sufficient fuel agreed to meet with us. It didn't matter that the task was staggering and nearly hopeless. It was something to do other than shutting down quietly. It would take us nearly a hundred million years to reach Andromeda, 
Only a few of us would be able to stop when we got there if any of us remained functional at all. Oddly enough, as we analyzed the problem, deterioration of our mechanical bodies would not be the major problem in such a long trip. The absolute zero chill of interstellar space was the best preservative known. Once the heat was allowed to radiate out of our ship bodies, it would not matter if the trip were a thousand years or a billion. But starting back up would require care and energy, and that was a problem. We were powered by plutonium-fueled nuclear fission reactors. It's a technology that is compact, energy-dense, and simple to implement. While fusion fuel is a bit lighter, the equipment needed to harness it is much more complex, and we had been designed to operate on our own after thousands of years in space. Plutonium-239 has a half-life of only 50,000 years. This was not a problem because the usual way PU-239 dies is to emit an alpha particle, turning it into uranium-235, which is also usable as a fuel source, and it, in turn, has a half-life of 700 million years. The problem is that a workable reactor core, even disabled and damped, would decay much more quickly by fission than by natural decay. We would have to somehow disperse our fuel to keep its own stray neutrons from ruining it. And then, after a hundred million years, we would have to reassemble enough of it to power up our mothballed fleet. It's the reassembly step that caused the problem. Something would have to gather our dispersed fuel, reassemble it, and start up a reactor without using a reactor. It was obvious we would have to use some kind of chemical or mechanical scheme, but it would have to be absolutely reliable in the dead chill of intergalactic night. Those of us in the best shape who were selected to stop at Andromeda began to prepare long before we were really sure there was a workable way for us to be awakened when we got there. We began with vastly expanded information storage. Each of us would have to carry all of our personalities. One ship made itself into a factory for holographic memory blocks. Every mechanical part was overhauled with an eye toward surviving the preservative deep freeze. We were powered from cables to other ships as our reactor casings were rebuilt and scrubbed free of fuel. Meanwhile, fuel was reprocessed and dispersed and schemes were tested for waking up to collect it. The final plan involved using a small amount of carefully hoarded chemical energy, kept warm by a sliver of nuclear fuel. This would power an electronic timer and provide the impulse when the timer kicked in to warm more chemical fuel. After several more stages of this, fuel cells would be able to power a ship mine and several small robots, which could in turn gather dispersed nuclear fuel to either reprime the timing mechanism or assemble a reactor core. The plan was to reprime each timer every 100,000 years, or about a 1,000 times during the intergalactic voyage. Since we expected a high failure rate, we built 16 systems, each capable of cross-priming several others on wake-up and many more spare parts to be used at the repriming stops.
the 1100 ships which managed to join our convoy originally carried enough fuel for every one of us to stop dead in our tracks, if need be, with respect to Saul. After the timer reawakening round robin and the careful final restarting and refueling, we planned on having 10 ships which would be able to stop. Two didn't reawaken properly, so in the end we had eight. We aimed for a likely point about two-thirds of the way from Andromeda's core to its spiral fringe, about the same distance from the core Earth and our colonies could be found in the Milky Way. The stars in this region had metal-rich spectra promising the availability of small worlds. The inert remains of our fleet would pass through the galaxy and continue on. Tiny bits of Sol cast more distant from their source than the debris even of a supernova. Our first thoughts were to form a pack and go hunting for dark worlds. But after some deliberation, we realized this was the wrong strategy. Long before the stars of Andromeda were in range, the eight of us headed in different directions. Now we were looking for planets around stars, and that's easy. We were too few to worry about forming ecosystems just yet. While biological life is greatly imperiled by the vagaries of stellar behavior, we adapt nicely to the nice high energy and high radiation environment around a fat, hot star. We looked for places likely to be top heavy in metals and radioactives. All eight of us found targets within a thousand years and all eight of us set up shop making copies of ourselves. The copies, in turn, went looking for human habitable worlds. Part three, passage of time. The man and the boy watch as the geothermally powered daylights go out one by one in a pattern meant to mimic some long forgotten astronomical phenomenon Finally, they are left in a darkness dotted by the small hard points of stars, a rare treat for which the man has been waiting since his own boyhood. The boy gasps as he connects these dots with the things he has known only from books and recordings for all his life. He is looking with his own eyes at the fierce bellies of natural fusion reactors, stars whose light can be perceived even by human eyes over distance of light years. How terrible it would be to be too close to one of those, yet how seductive they somehow are, taunting beacons that make one instinctively want to touch them. The man is also impressed by the tunic parts of starlight, but his real attention is focused on a barely visible patch of nebulosity just in the place where the machines have told him to look for it. His merely human eyes aren't up to the task of resolving it as a mighty wheel as the machines can, but that doesn't matter. I am seeing it with my own eyes, he thinks. Photons from our home are striking my eyes right now. They have traveled for two million years, but they are not an image or a picture. They are real bits of energy connecting me to Saul, to the earth. 
the man and the boy cannot see each other, and this makes the awkward question possible. Dad, the boy asks, do you really think we came from out there? The man nods. Yes, the machines brought us here, he says. The boy has heard this idea before. Everyone else says they made us. The man has heard this idea before. You'd have to ask yourself, he says thoughtfully, why they do it just this way? Why bother taking a cold, wandering ball of rock like home and insulating it, warming it, remaking the atmosphere? Also, you can seed it with these chaotic things like us that resist all control. He smiles when it would have been so much easier for them to make more of their own kind. They're smarter and more powerful than us. Who knows? Maybe they do it a little different each time to show how it'll come out. When they show us pictures of other worlds, the people are like us. Maybe they only show the ones that, uh, that are like us. Why would there be any others like us if they were experimenting? I think they're actually very careful to keep us from changing too much. I think they keep us around for the same reason. We visit Gramps every 16. We may not be good for much in the great scheme of things, but we are their parents. But they're so powerful. That doesn't make sense. Without them, we'd freeze or starve or suffocate. They keep the whole world in balance because we can't. We need them for everything. How could we have made things like them? The man kneels. He reaches, finds his son in the darkness, clasps the boy's hand. I know a lot of people feel that way, he says. But somewhere there is a world that circles a very stable star in a very stable orbit. It's an extraordinary place, and there living things had the time and energy and conditions to assemble themselves into very complicated forms without their help. You're talking about the Earth, the boy interrupts. They say that's just a story, like the machines tell us to pull our legs, like the ones about fairies and dinosaurs. Some of them say the same thing about stars. The man points up. They exist. And how else could it have happened? You can see the similarity between a simple bacterium and a human, but there's no such simple machine that could have evolved into the ones that we know today. Earth exists. It's where all where we all came from, machine and human. We don't even know where this Earth place is supposed to be. Oh, we know where it is, the man says with a smile. It's right there and he points at the faint distant wheel of the milky way nebula the boy nods but he is obviously dubious both of them know it's an old argument but neither of them realize quite how old it is soon the clouds which are an important part of the world's insulation against the cold of interstellar space close over again for a while, the boy contemplates his father's vision, but later on, he will look up and see only clouds, and the more important business of life will fill his head. He is a sensible boy, 
and in his turn, he will not bother those powerful guardians to show his babies a smudge of light and darkness. As a sensible man, he will accept the truth of human and machine origin is unknowable, and he will have a sensible man's understanding of when the guardian machines are having a joke at his expense. This has been Passages in the Void, narrated by Roger Williams for Tommy's podcast. Roger, you bastard. Did it again. I thought you might, want to get, you might want to get used to it because it's like I don't bother to write anything unless it's going to create that feeling. Yeah, that's, that's I know what you're talking about. That's what it has, though. It would have, that's the thing that gets me is it would eventually be lost to time. It would eventually fade off to where it's just right. It's like it's kind of like Inception right it's like Mm -hmm. how'd you get here it's like the one thing about a dream is you never remember how you got here yeah i was just uh how did i get to this cafe i've kind of thought about i remember getting really high one day in college by myself sitting in my room just higher than the giraffe pussy and just thinking if (laughs) that's what my friend cj used to say the big old redneck don't you get higher than giraffe pussy but that's one thing that got to me i was like where I mean, we always write it off as, oh, well, you know, you weren't alive. You were, you hadn't been born yet. Then you're born, and you kind of remember things around like two or three. And but there's sort of that whole thing that that's like a microcosm of all of the human race. It's like, yeah, we were apes, and then, you know, we kind of started making wheels, and we're here. And it's like, is it that? Is it just that? It doesn't need to be more. I don't know. It's are are we are do machines help carry out panspermia? One thing that the corrosion people uh, asked through this and the next story, which we'll do next time, was why do these machines have such a dog-like uh, obedience loyalty? loyalty to the human race it's like why are we so important to them the uh it's the third story that will explain that (laughs) okay yeah i could see that as a question yeah why are they in my in my in my hypothesis before the third story it's because they're so powerful and so indifferent to us it's like it's like if a dog was like, why does he put out my water every day? Why is he so loyal to bringing me my water? And it's because it's such a trivial part of my existence that I'm like, I just go take his bowl and put it on the sink and put it back down. Mm-hmm. It's my existence is so beyond that, that it has no idea about the stock market and gravitational waves and Reddit and, <laughs> you know, the new MacBook. Like it's, it's not that it's like, the dog is the center of my life. It's like, I love it. I like having him around, so I give him some water. Make sure he keeps sticking around. It might just be that. Well, that will be a reasonable hypothesis at a certain point, but at this point, the machines have made it like their entire goal. They have, they have devoted like yeah. all of their energy to sending out these searcher packs looking for suitable worlds. 
So that's true. There's not any evidence that they've done anything else except sure. that. But on the timeline of machines that could theoretically just live yeah. forever, to them, 500 years for an intercept, 100 million mm-hmm. years of hibernation, that might be nothing. Again, the dog might be like, you know, let's say, right, a dog year is seven years, right? So it might be, you know, if I go to the store to get it treats and it takes me 10 minutes, it might think, why did it just take an hour of its time, right? It's Why, is it, why has it been taking care of me? Why is it taking you so long? Where's dad? Yeah, in reality, it's like I've had two dogs now. I'm 30. I've had two dogs. I like, get them as puppies and, like, live a good long life back to back. And it's like huh? I'm 30. Like I'll probably have to do that several more times. Like, You're even, not even half of your expected life expectancy old. Exactly, and Oscar lived to seventeen and a half. He was a hundred year old, something hundred and twelve, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it might be the same thing. It's like, well, that's you know they put all their energy to us. Them seeding the the galaxy or finding other life, that might be uh that's what they're doing before breakfast, like. If they live to hundreds of trillions or quadrillions of years, a hundred million years is like, yeah, sure. We'll take we'll take an afternoon and go find your habitable planet. You know, but it, it might be that trivial. Yeah. Well, obviously a a hundred million years was a long time for them, but they managed it. Sure. Yeah. That's the point of the story. I said that's one of the shortest stories ever told that manages to span a billion years. True, true. That was my my own OCD mind was thinking when you were like they dispersed their uh, their plutonium and uranium, so as not to so as not to, I guess to slow down its decay. Mm-hmm. My own OCD mind before you even said it, I was like, well, if they don't have any energy, like how like putting them back together requires energy. But of course, that's probably maybe that's why I love your writing so much is because it's. Those are the weird. That's what originally got me onto Mopey, was it's just like you took care of the OCD. Just that's what I would think of. Right? I saw. I hate. I hate. I hate things that the the unraveled corners, the the details yeah. that are not taken care of. I was like, no, the the, the you know the details have to be yes taking the corners have to be tucked in yes it has it has to make sense yeah if it doesn't make sense it doesn't work for me as a story yeah and that's the sense i mean as i haven't written a lot of things yeah but one of the reasons i haven't written a lot of things is that i have high standards i mean i have uh several ideas that i've abandoned because i was trying to write them uh you know and, and couldn't make them work yeah but anyway speaking of which there is an interesting story behind this story there are only two stories that i ever wrote with no hope you know with no conception that i would ever get them published at all i wrote them purely for myself Mm -hmm. one was mopey and this was the other and i wrote it in the mid 90s after reading the book rare earth Mm -hmm. which i found extremely persuasive uh basically laying the case that while life may be plentiful in the universe worlds like the earth probably aren't because it took an incredible series of 
coincidences for the earth to be stable enough for things like us to evolve for eukaryotic multicellular organisms in particular. And I, I looked even today as we're discovering, you know, when I, when I read that, you know, there are a few things in that story that don't quite hold up because we're finding out now that we have better detection techniques, that there are more worlds out there that are not hot or elliptical Jupiters. Because when I wrote that story, it was the hot and elliptical Jupiters that were easiest to detect that we had detected a few of. So now we know that there are actually far more planets than that. But also we know that there are actually a shitload of planets that have been ejected into interstellar space because by the same reasoning, you know, the uh, the same uh, science that is telling us there are more planets are telling us that, yeah, lots of planets are out there flying around in the interstellar void. So that part of the story is actually better than it was when I wrote it. Um, but I read the book Rare Earth and I was seized by this idea. And it, it was just like when I was seized by the idea for Mopey. I had to write it. Yeah. And and I wrote it in the mid nineties. Uh after I had wrote Mopey. But uh so it went in the drawer. And in the early aughts, I started writing nonfiction articles for Corrosion, developed a little bit of a reputation for myself there. Um and one day I dropped passages in the void into the miscellaneous boulder there. It was like, they didn't really have a fiction section, but, uh, I just dropped it and said, like, if you guys think this is inappropriate, just vote it down or, or whatever. And they voted it up. Then there was a huge discussion about whether their site should even be hosting fiction at all. To which I uh, I had to admit, you know, yes, it is true that nearly all web fiction is crap. Okay, so it's a problem. So you, if you have a fiction section, then you're you're asking people to drop dog turds in there. Yeah. But in passing, you know, you know, this was the story that I had dropped, and it was in the course of that discussion I mentioned that, well, you have to realize that if you weren't here if the site wasn't here if it didn't provide me a place to put it then passage in the void would be in the same drawer as my novel yeah and they were like novel you have a novel um could we like read it and uh you know this is like in 2002 so yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh i was like well i could probably be persuaded you know it's like now i had to actually think about it hard yeah both both because well there's the the whole pirating copyright issues it's like does it get out of my control sure. there's the fact that it's fucking transgressive as hell yeah and you know do i want people that i know to find out that I wrote this thing. Yeah. The, the ironic thing there is my boss knows that I wrote the trend, you know, the metamorphosis of prime intellect. So 
for for everyone listening, Metamorphosis of Primate Elect is my favorite book. It's what it's how I first got to know Roger, and it is also the most brutal rated R, rated X, no holds. Again, why I love it is because it's just you'll hear my complaint about Grand Theft Auto, the video game. I'm like, you shoot someone in the face and they just fall over and there's a red puddle. I'm like, I want to see brains. Like, that's <laughs> that's what Mopey is. Mopey is like, there's no, just like you tuck in the edges of the of the, the bed, there's also no, you don't just fold over creases. You're like, no, if there are creases, this is what it is. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, you know? I mean, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's not, awful. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's really, not, there's... It's not like a Nickelodeon rendition of a war where it's like, ah, oh, I've been shot. No, it's like Saving Private Ryan, where it's just like, <laughs> oh, you're like, what am I watching? But it's real. Yeah, and and, and well, and the thing is too, you you see that. Um, actually, I just got the first disc for Westworld season three, mm-hmm. and uh, this is you know. The first two seasons are set in the Delos Park, so they're set in the Wild West Park, or the you know yeah. The, there's a few scenes that are in the other parks or in the labs that are supporting the parks, but in season three they go into the outside world, the actual real world of the human uh, environment at the time. And it's beautifully realized, which, you know, it, it would have to be. But in the very first episode, they go into one of the characters, one of the 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 bots from Westworld is in a simulation within what they're starting to suspect is the simulation of real life. So it's like there's there's characters who are saying the real the world we live in is a simulation but within that simulation this robot was in another simulation in inside of that yeah where they where uh, she was being tested yeah and so it's like yeah, I love that shit. Yeah, that is that is totally Roger. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, it's like it's like if this world is a simulation, yet you know you can get lost in a good video game. You develop a character. You know, you can choose mm-hmm. whether your character's good or evil. You know, do you do you you know you can hunt down the the thief, and but then you can bring the purse back to the lady, or you can just take the purse on your own. Or my favorite, you bring the purse back and then you kill her too, and so you get double the loot. That's right. <laughs> But you can get caught up in that. You know, you can remember it's a game, but you can get caught up in it. And if life is a simulation, you are getting caught up in a simulation within a simulation. Yeah. Well, I mean, that would be where we are. Yeah. Yeah. And then who's to say it doesn't, who's to say as you wake up from this life, you're just, you're putting a controller yeah. down. My favorite of all the, I mean, there's a, obviously there, it's kind of been beaten to death, but one of my favorite like memes is like, you die and life fades out. And then you find yourself sitting back on a couch and you're like a fifth dimensional like alien gray and you're holding a bomb and you look inside and there's like a universe and all your friends are looking at you going, Did it work? <laughs> and it's like it's like, oh fuck. Like you exhale and you there's still like galaxies like smoke coming out, you're like, Yeah. Yeah, it worked. And it's just like, cool, let me hit it. And it's like that's what it's like all of creation is just like 
you and your friends are ripping ripping a bong before like you go to the park it it's makes like, as much sense as anything else as anything honestly. else man and it's just like and then that one's in a you and that one's and it just goes forever which if nothing really matters and we're all just in a microcosm and a microcosm and a molecule in a universe then you shouldn't hesitate throwing down some money and buying the metamorphosis of prime intellect <laughs> Which will be linked in the description and stick it in the top comment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we actually had a, a little office game. You know, they had the office. You know, Christmas party. It's Friday. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's like normally they do it in a restaurant, a nice thing, and also instead we did it at the office, and there's no spouses or anybody because of the COVID bullshit. <laughs> But uh, they had a, a little trivia game, uh, multiple choice test about the history of our company. And uh, no one got uh, more than a third of the answers right. Uh, I was in the second tier. But uh, the first prize was a tenth of an ounce gold coin. Ooh. Which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh then uh, I was in the second tier. The uh, the second tier got uh, one ounce silver rounds, but there were only four of them. The guy who tied for first and missed the tiebreaker got one of them, and the other three guys got the other three, and I was the lucky loser. I was the only one who got 10 of the 30 right who didn't get a prize, and I just said, that's all right. I have a tenth of a Bitcoin. Yeah. Hey, uh, wait, do you really? <laughs> yes, I have 0.091. How, how much are Bitcoins now? It's selling for like uh, 22000 Fuck yeah. So my tenth of a Bitcoin is worth over $2,000. Dude, my, dude my, bro- my older brother, I swear to God, in like 2014 or something, he tipped a, like a pizza delivery guy. No, sorry, he got paid. I apologize. My brother was, I think he was doing delivery or something. It was like last semester at college. Whenever the fuck, I'm butchering the dates. But it was my older brother. And he received like four or five Bitcoins. But he has no idea how to, he doesn't know where the like the wallet is. And it's all like encrypted. You know, it's like you can't, like, I forgot my password. Like you can't get it. Well, again. if you forgot your password, you're screwed. Well, no, that's it. Because no, there's can't. no way to recover it. That's what it is. Is he's, I mean, he does, he, he, he does well for himself, so I don't think he's worried. But it's just kind of like a recurring yeah. theme. He's like, "There's like five bitcoins out there." No, there's people. There's people who who like uh, started mining it back when you could do it with your PC, mm-hmm. and they let their PC run for a few weeks and got like fifty bitcoins, and now they're like, "What the fuck was my password?" Because this is worth a fortune. Yeah. And there's, you know, it's like, but, but there's no recovery mechanism. If you don't remember that password, you're screwed. Yeah. And, I, and, and I don't have the, the other thing is you have the people who signed over their Bitcoins to the, the, what do they call them? The, the, the people who do the trading to, to convert back and forth to dollars. So, you give them your bitcoins, they give you an account. Well, they got hacked. Yeah. And you lost your account. No, it's like, no, I actually have 0.092 Bitcoin on the blockchain that I have 
my you know personal yes. password for as far as every anyone knows it's completely secure yeah and i hashed it out uh the last time bitcoin was trading this high i bought a 500 dollar uh home depot gift card and a 500 dollar amazon gift card fuck yeah and i decided to leave the rest just to see what would happen yeah and it went down in value, you know. It's like, oh, yeah. yeah, well, it's like. Now, at one point, I had about 0. 0.250, which would be worth like seventy thousand dollars now. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, you know, it's like it's one of the very first transactions I did with my donated Bitcoin. Because what it is is, I had a few people who wanted to donate to me for my tip jar, but they were like, they emailed me and said, "Man, I hate PayPal." You know, yeah, yeah. What else you got? So, doesn't cost anything to create a Bitcoin wallet. Yeah. So I created a Bitcoin wallet, did the QR code, put it on my website, and so I got what was probably maybe sixty bucks in donations at the time. Yeah. And the very first thing I did is I got selected for jury duty, and so I made a donation to FIJA, the Fully Informed Jury Association, just as. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And um, that was like worth maybe 50 bucks then. It would probably be worth about three or four thousand today. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't remember how much Bitcoin I had. I think I had like a hundredth of a Bitcoin, but I had it like a while, like over five years ago. And I remember I used it to. I used it to order acid from Canada. <laughs> no regrets. Yeah, I. Uh, yeah, I've uh, I've used mine to order. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is what it was invented for. Yeah. No. It, it let was, us not it, forget. Let us not forget. No, it was for drugs. There's no if ands. It was for drugs. For drugs, it was for RC chemicals. Or RC chemicals, RCs. It's like saying pin numbers. Recreational. Yeah, yeah. It's like saying pin number, ATM machine. Yeah, personal identity. Yeah, it's. I was gonna say about the rogue planets. Is that isn't that like a hypothesis now that they think there are actually more rogue planets? Planets have been stripped away from their systems. If I'm if I'm recalling this correctly, they now think there are more rogue planets than they think that there are starbound planets. Yeah, the, it's 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 gone from a remote conjecture to the uh, they they think that that is uh, you know comparable numbers at the very least. Yeah. And uh, the thing is, when I wrote that story, uh, that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. The, no one no one had any idea. Yeah, all that was known was that the few planets that had been uh, detected then which were the easiest ones to find. So it was detection bias. We're hot Jupiters and elliptical Jupiters. You know, because we're, even today, we are barely at the threshold of being able to detect an Earth-like world that is actually in, a, uh, in, a, in, a, in a, an Earth-like orbit, yeah. which would be life-detecting. But 
you know, the easiest planets to detect are the most extreme, it turns out. But there were plenty of those. And that was like, okay, well, if you've got one of these systems, you've got a Jupiter-like world going wing in the elliptical orbit, then... You know, all the rest of the crap in the solar system has got flung out in interstellar space. If you know anything about yeah, if one of them is that, then yeah, you know the rest got knocked the fuck so, out. So there's got to be a lot of crap out there. Which and, is, uh, it's kind of terrifying to think about. Just whole worlds, just, just nothing. Just not only I have to think about intergalactic ones, ones that have been whipped out, just really fucking got some spice on it, like a fastball. <laughs> They're just cooking out in like some super void. Yeah, the uh, actually, um, I think it was Ian Ian M. Banks wrote a story called "Against a Dark Background," which is set in a solar system like ours, but its star had been flung out into intergalactic space. So even though it was nominally set in a universe where interstellar travel was possible, uh, the beings of this world hadn't discovered it because it would be such a long trip to get anywhere. Yeah. Even even with faster than light travel, it would be you know there because there was nowhere for them to go anywhere close. Yeah. And. Uh, yeah, that's that's another thing that's that's funny. The uh, now the uh, the next story, um, which we'll do on our our, our next podcast, will be uh, you'll you'll like it because it will close that loop. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah, we'll save that for the next one. Um, yeah. That I guess last last thought is a. Uh, that's one thing I remember thinking years ago. I was like, "What a be- like, what better idea for a spaceship? Like, it wouldn't be conventional. It wouldn't be we need a massive ship that we can fit everyone on. It would be like if you could somehow get the sun to be flung out of the galaxy. The night sky would change, but for all intents and purposes, you'd still just be like the sun moving would be the engine, and like the Earth would mm-hmm. be one of the passengers. Not only that, you can bring nine other, eight other planets, right? And you can be like, "Oh, that's our luggage. Bring all the raw materials. We just go cooking." Well, out. that was kind of what uh, Banks did in Dark Background because they uh, there was an entire solar system. Yeah. Uh, there was the original habitable world that these beings did, and, and it was a very, very, very old race at the point that the story is set so they've like thoroughly explored everything yeah they have bases everywhere and so it's bouncing back and forth throughout this solar system um but they've had a couple of wars and so there's some lost technology and they're finding one of the uh uh tokens of this lost technology but you know at the same time it's like it's just completely taken for granted of course that uh, it, and anything big enough for humans to live on as humans living on it and has for tens of thousands of years yeah, yeah. but they they can't go anywhere else because they're in intergalactic space so even though they might have the nominal technology for interstellar travel 
Oh, it needs yeah. to be a little. It needs to be a little better than that because yeah. it's not just interstellar at this point. Yeah, you know they're like out in the. It's like if you're halfway between Andromeda and the Milky Way, you're in the middle of fucking nowhere. Yeah, it's a million light years. Billion. One way. Is, wait, is, is Andromeda two billion or two million? Million. Okay, yeah, it's you're million right. light years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, I had it being a hundred million years in the story for them to travel slower than light because they were going about two percent of the speed of light. Sure. Oh, and Andromeda is going to crash into the Milky Way within about a billion years. Don't. That's what. That's where the billion comes from. Yeah. And isn't isn't it something crazy like? there's close to like a hundred percent chance that like not a single planet or star will will actually collide that's how distant yeah. everything is because it's like two gas clouds passing through one yeah, another no. so they'll do all this fancy interaction yeah, gravitational shit but it'll end up being one big elliptical galaxy but it's like oh no there's not going to be any you know it's like you know the sky will just change. It's not going to be like a risk to the earth or anything. Yeah, it's not but gonna... I'm, not, I'm not so sure of that myself because that's, I'm not uh, so sure. You know, you got all these stars passing through at, you know, something like 50,000 clicks per second. Yeah. And how far do they have to be away to perturb the orbits of our planets? Yeah. Yeah. So. It might not be quite that safe, but it's... If they, if they do collide, at least it'll, pro- it'll probably be peaceful. You won't have any idea. If you get hit with, I don't know, like a Venus at 300,000 <laughs> kilometers a second. <sighs> well, what's more likely is that it'll not, you know, Neptune out of its orbit slightly and... Come crashing into yeah. us. Well, and it'll mess up the... Uh, the harmonic relationship between the stars, you know, between the, the planetary orbits. Because that's the thing is the reason that Earth has been stable for so long is that the gas giants in our solar system settled into harmonically tuned orbits. Mm-hmm. So they're not jostling each other. They're, uh, they're actually reinforcing each other and the inner planets. Yeah. So that's what keeps the, you know, that's what's what's what the debris out of the inner solar system is that these shifting gravitational fields uh, cleared out anything that wasn't in one of these stable orbits. Basically, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars are in the stable orbits. Yeah. As defined by the gas giants. Yeah. Now, if something comes through and knocks one of the gas giants out, then that could create a situation where over hundreds or of thousands or millions of years, the entire solar system could be whacked, you know, knocked out of kilter and who knows what the hell would happen then. But it's, you know, not something that we need to worry about unless there's like extreme longevity or something. Yeah, we ain't going to make it. I don't think we are. And even if you did make it, that's still a nice long time. Mm. You know, if you got yeah, to live I mean, for a... Well, for one thing, 
the galaxies aren't going to collide for a you know until about a billion to two billion years from now yeah so even the most extreme longevity it's like i'm not really fucking worried about it at this point we should start pearl clutching <laughs> now and be like <laughs> and be like classic humans we you know we see this coming right at us and we don't even care like we need to pass this legislation now you know Start handing out. Yeah, do something about it. We gotta start handing out flyers at soccer games to suburban moms. Be like, <laughs> you know, fair play for Andromeda Committee or whatever. <laughs> so, well, let's wrap this bitch up, Roger. And um, are you? Which slot do you like more? I think you said you like weekdays more. I don't remember. It's up to you. Um, yeah, cause the, uh, the thing in, in, on the weekends, I tend to try to be doing other stuff. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. you know, if, 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 but, but on the weekdays, it's gotta be like, uh, four or five o'clock here or later because yeah. I'm working. Yeah. So, um, the advantage is I haven't been drinking beer since 8am. So. Well, then it's not a real Sunday. Let's, um. <laughs> the same for fuck i don't care text me let's do monday or tuesday or wednesday or thursday or... right well it's like what i'm looking at uh well okay so not tomorrow well, of course i mean like a week of later. course next week next week has christmas christmas is friday yes this friday uh yeah i've got podcast monday tuesday wednesday but i'm gonna take like two days off okay so this so thursday this is this, this is Oh yeah, this is the twentieth. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Christmas is in five days. Dang. Okay. It sneaks up on you. Yep. How about the twenty eighth, Monday? Next Monday. Sure. What time? What time? Your time. Well, I'll be working, so it has yeah, to be. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Just let me know when. Yeah. Uh, say. Four o'clock central. Uh, well, let's say five o'clock central time. Okay, so six. Is that my, okay? Yep, six my time. Yeah. Here we go. Got you in next week. <laughs> we don't have any shit again. Roger, wake up! What the fuck? Time, dude. Wait. Time zone. Oh. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> right. It's like he's got fifteen minutes to go, man. It's like what? Yes. And it's like I all these messages. Can't get all of you. <laughs> Like, it's because I was asleep, man. I literally just sat here and I was like, okay, okay, I need to get my, you're like, you want to still do it? And I was like, no, <laughs> no, I, I clearly need to balance. I need to get my head together. Um, fuck yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I need to get a lighter pair of headphones because the thing, uh, these, I love, I love these for listening to the music, but. I, I'm actually they. Uh, well, besides having a bowling ball over each ear, it's I. Uh, they they seal me off from my own voice. Yeah. So, the the on ears probably better for that. Yeah. But uh, but the nice thing is like now we know the microphone works. You're, Microphone's you're good great. With, Okay, so we're you know yeah. you know, we're working on it then. Yeah. Um, Baby steps. Yeah. You know, and and um, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you do when you got more freedom when you move out and, and do your own studio because you'll have the ability to start 
from zero. Oh, I'm, I'm going to design it from the ground up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's going to be uh, a real opportunity. Yeah. It's not going to be till this summer. So I've got plenty of time, but I've already got some like rough drafts. It's going to be good. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, the reason I don't wear big headphones though, is they give me a headache. Then it's also, yeah, I can't hear my voice. Get that Helen Keller effect going. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I like the over ears like this mm-hmm. for for listening to music. Sure. Because they seal out all of the outside noises. Yeah. But I also can't hear, I, I can't hear my own voice the yeah. way that I do, you know, like this. So that's distracting and a, a, a bit weird so yeah the uh the the ones that just press up against your ears without engulfing them yeah. like this are are a little better than that and uh i can pick a pair yeah that's but it's also nice to be able to just oh yeah what's, what's this yes i i don't have to I'm, I'm not tethered to the damn computer yeah no that's a, <laughs> so, that's a, that's a bitch and a half moving yank um, well, and especially because the the life the life chat ones have this thing mm-hmm. in the cord. Yeah. So as bad as it is being tethered to the computer, then you've got this thing gets hooked. Yeah. Little, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, I like having the Bluetooth headphones, but the uh, the thing is, these have a microphone mm-hmm. built in. But it's crap. Yeah, I had I had to go find the settings to turn it off uh, because it's garbage. Yeah, I mean because yes, like where's the fucking microphone? It's like yeah. right next to my ears. It's like no, that's it's retarded. Yeah, it's well. I mean, if you're just doing like basic you know phone call, Zoom chat type stuff, you know, I I suppose it's good enough. Mm-hmm. But um. I think we're aiming for a little bit better than that. Just a little higher. Just a little bump it up. (laughs) Fuck yeah. Well, Roger Williams, author of Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect. Let's uh, let's wrap this bitch up and uh, Merry Christmas, my man. Merry Christmas. Hopefully, it's 2020, so I don't even fucking want to know what happens on Christmas. It just... We're so close. We're, we got eleven days. We're just we're gonna slip through this. We're just gonna slip through. But we got eleven days. Twenty twenty, yeah. Twenty twenty is peeking its head around the corner. It's like, it's it's like it's not over yet. What do you think it has planned? Fucking Santa's gonna get shot down by Norad. It's gonna be that hundred mile debris streak. Dead elves. Fucking. There's no, there's no fucking, but you know, you, yeah, I, you made a milestone. You got through an entire podcast without going to the bathroom in the middle of it. Well, jeepers. We're in the, we're in the big leagues now, boys. Jokes on Roger. This podcast sponsored by Pampers because I've been pissing this entire time, pissing and shitting this entire time. Yeah, that's 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 depends. That's depends. Yeah, you're right. Whatever it is, it's it's this part. F- fuck it, whatever. <laughs>
<laughs> Let's wrap this bitch up, Roger. It'll probably probably it's probably not gonna be uploaded until tomorrow. So I'll send you a link when it's up. All right, and see you next Monday. Of course, my man. Thank you as always for coming on, Roger. Always a pleasure. I love talking to you, dude. And um, stay safe, everybody. Merry Christmas. I don't know why the fuck I'm saying Merry Christmas. I've got like six more episodes to do before Christmas. <laughs> Signing <laughs> off. And I'll see everybody tomorrow. Um, and to all a good night. And to all a good night. Fucking 2020 is not over yet. Knock on wood. Fucking A. I don't even want to know. All right, my man. I'll see you, Roger. <laughs>